Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Science Stories. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. Nuria Negrão, that she has a PhD in cellular biology from the University of Georgia, but nowadays works as a freelance medical and science writer, and she's based in, in Baltimore. How are you doing, Dr. Negrão? I'm good. How are you? You can call me just Nuria. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'll call you Nuria then. Thank you. You're located in Baltimore right now, but... You are originally from Mozambique, right? Yes, that is true. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? How did you cross the pond? Oh, <laughs> I never thought I was going to come to the U.S. actually. So it was a bit surprising to me too. I had done my bachelor's and I'd actually done an honors in South Africa. And I wanted to go back. I was working in Mozambique and I wanted to go back and, and study a bit more. And I was actually looking at a scholarship to go to the UK. But then a friend of mine, she had applied for the scholarship to come to the US and she was already here. And she was like, oh, you must apply for this scholarship. And she sent me all the materials. So yeah, I applied, I got in, I got in. It turned out that the, the, the scholarship to come to the US, uh, the application was earlier than the one to go to the UK. So I actually, uh, got the, the scholarship before it was even time to start applying to go to the UK. So that's why I came here <laughs> because I got the scholarship. And, and I was only supposed to come for two years because I was only supposed to come for a master's, but then I ended up doing a PhD. So that took the total time, the master's and the PhD, seven and a half years, almost eight years. By then I had a, a life here. So it was a little bit more complicated to, to move somewhere else. The reason I just want to tell, let the audience know, the reason I know you are from Mozambique is not because I am a sort of stalker, which I, I have to be a little bit if I want to do research on my guests, but it is because I've been part of a communication course in which you were a teacher and I, it was really interesting and I'm really thankful for all the things that you, you taught me. How, how long have you been teaching science communication? So I took the course myself in 2018 and then after that, Uh, I started teaching it. So I've been, I've been teaching, teaching it in this course for, for quite a while, actually, since 2018. So, Nuria, I don't know if you know, but in this podcast, I, I bring as wide as a variety as possible of people related to science. And, and so that was the main reason I invited you, because you have a, a different perspective I haven't covered yet, that it's the science writer and the medical writer. But before we start talking about that, do you mind if we talk a little bit about your, your research that you did during the PhD? No, no, go ahead. Uh, yes. All right. So I've been reading your articles and please correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. So during your PhD, you studied Trypanosoma brucei, which is a species from a group of parasites that is responsible for causing the African trypanosomiasis, right? Which is a, a disease that is an important concern, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it has 
two well-studied stages. So the, the pro-cyclic form that replicates in the vector the sets a fly that we all heard about this sleeping sickness that it, it gives, which is actually something that I learned recently that it, it's not the fly that gives you the sickness, it's a parasite that, that the fly carries. Yes, exactly. Okay, yes. good. Mm-hmm. So that's one form. <laughs> And the other form is the bloodstream form. So in the, in the life cycle, cycle, it has these two mm-hmm. forms. And this bloodstream form, it thrives in the blood and the extracellular fluids of, of a mammalian host. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's super important. What's interesting about this, this system is that the bloodstream form, so the, the, the one that is inside, it could be potentially be inside of us. It has mm-hmm. a protein in the surface that it's continuously being changed to protect itself from the host's immune system or from the Mm -hmm. host's immune response. And in order to change that surface protein, they need another protein that it cuts this surface protein and releases it, right? I'm I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to super simplify your really complicated work. (laughs) Yes. And again, Mm -hmm. this cutting protein has two typical known variants Mm -hmm. that that are well known and well studied. You explored a third variant of this protein that cuts the surface protein from the trypanosoma parasite that it's a sort of camouflage. It's it's the way it, 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 it hides itself from the immune yes. system. Yes, so so microscopic parasites, all a lot of them have these uh, life cycles that include uh, a vector and a host. So you'll see those various forms all the time. And if you study parasitology, you always have to to, to study the life cycle and you'll always hear these different blood bloodstream and procyclic and other types of things. And the African trypanosomes and the parasite that causes malaria, plasmodium, they both have these surface protein, uh, proteins that were first described in, in trypanosoma brucei that it's kind of like imagine having a, a raincoat uh, and you have like hundreds of raincoats and the cops know to look for the yellow raincoats but then when the cops are coming to you you just change your raincoat and put a red raincoat and and all of that so i think you explained that really really well and uh the the protein that you're talking about is um a gpi um uh, uh, PLC, uh, which is what cuts, like what what would enable you, say, to take your raincoat on and put another one. But what I studied uh, was a different time, a different type of protein that's like a cousin of that one, and it's one that usually is intracellular. What is interesting about the protein that I was working on was that we know that so proteins come from genes, right? And with trypanosomes, we can take out genes, we can knock them out. So if we take out this gene, the parasites don't survive. So this protein is important. A lot of uh, the African trypanosomes have this protein. It is expressed in um, all of the African trypanosomes. So it's important for all of them, for the whole family, but we don't know what it does. And my PhD was trying to figure out what does this protein do? And I and I had a few different hypotheses that I followed. And uh, you used such a, a wide variety of methods. So mm-hmm. you use cell culture, bioinformatics, cloning, immunofluorescence assays. Mm-hmm. Um, you work with yeast, you work with mice. It's crazy. What a wide variety of methods that you used. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that is a characteristic of uh, projects in, in cellular biology, I feel. Yeah, we have so many techniques. We look at things from so many different perspectives. Uh, we, we do do quite a few biochemistry uh, type techniques, but we also do a lot of cell biology techniques and other things like that. Yeah, and like when you're working with a protein, you also end up doing, so, so the bioinformatics, the mass spec, uh, all of that is like trying um, the expression of the protein because I express the protein. Uh, so that means like the protein is in a parasite. I copied the gene to bacteria and I had bacteria, I uh, use bacteria as factories to produce lots of it. Like we use bacteria to produce insulin, for example. And then I purified the protein and I tried to, <laughs> to make it. To, to, to do assays, uh, activity assays to see what it would do. So all of that is like more biochemistry because all of that is like proteomics and trying to figure out that bioinformatics was, okay, so we know the amino acid sequence we know. So we put it in like these, I guess they are AIs, right? Like these, uh, these things that try and then give you a structure uh, of the of the protein they are ais they are like <laughs> the the mother of ais the most yeah they, they are mo yeah. like 3d structures predictors yes. right yeah yeah so that uh, then you can from there like try and get an idea like try and get a like guess like what does this protein do so i did a lot of that and then i did some animal studies too i did infect uh mice uh with um the the parasite with the gene and the parasite without the gene uh to see if this gene was important for maintaining an infection and uh and it was also important we also saw that it was important so yes i did a lot of stuff yeah that's true do you have one of those met methods that you preferred that was your favorite a favorite method you, you know like those days that today i have to do this thing it's mm -hmm. gonna be great And then you have yes. the other, the other so, example like, as well. The thing about these, uh, about, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, it was like, anytime I was doing something new, I was very excited. And then because you have to do it like a million times, it gets very, at the end, it's just like, this is so boring. I think like the, trying all the different methods and every time I tried a different thing, I thought that that was very exciting. I liked that. I used to spend, so you did, you said that I did tissue culture and I did a lot of tissue culture just to keeping the parasites alive. And I used to spend hours in, in the tissue culture room. And that's when I got my podcast addiction because I had lots of time where you, I mean, it's not like you're not thinking, but you're kind of not thinking. It's mechanical work. And I had so many hours every day that I was just sitting there just passing parasites that I got a, a podcast addiction from that. Um, yeah, and, and the audience might might not know this, but when you work mm -hmm. in the in the cell culture hood, for example, mm -hmm. you cannot do anything else because the risk of contamination is really really high. So you cannot stop and mm -hmm. check your phone or write yeah. or anything. You have to sterilize everything and get yeah. in there and work and work and work and work. So I I do the same thing. I hook up to mm -hmm. an a podcast or mm -hmm. like a, a podcast I like and I let it run, let it run, let it run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you you go in and for those like people shouldn't be talking to you, you just focused on that. Um so sometimes I really liked that because it was kind of like meditative, you know, and you could yeah. So I'll tell you what I don't like. 
even though it was exciting in the beginning, uh, by the end, I really don't like working with uh, radioactivity because I had to do quite a few assays that involve radioactivity. And radioactivity is so hard to work with. You need to be so careful. Um, and it's just like with all the, the things that you need to be careful with in cell culture, they are nothing compared to any assay that involves radioactivity. Nuria, yeah. what happened after you finished your PhD? that you, instead of pursuing a, and I'm, I'm not judging, I'm just asking, yeah. instead of pursuing a research career, you, you went for the writer path. What determined uh, that transition? So there's, it's a complicated, isn't it always a complicated uh, answer? But so part of it was that I, I came to the U.S. with a, a J-1 visa. That's an exchange visitor visa because I came on this scholarship. And I had to go back home to my home country for two years before I could immigrate, before I could come back. So I knew that as soon as I finished my PhD, that I would have to go back to Mozambique. And I tried uh, to get work back in Mozambique, but it wasn't being easy to immediately find some work. At the same time, I had uh, been investigating like what else is there, like other careers, like I had been exploring other careers. And I knew that there was this thing called medical writing, science writing that you can do from home. And that actually like uh, pays decently and all of that. And I always really liked communicating science and, uh, and talking about science. So I was like, and I'm a good, always people have always said that I'm a good writer and all that. So I was like, maybe this is a good Uh, this would be a good career for me. So I actually started investigating careers in science writing and medical writing while I was still doing my PhD. And then what happened was like, I actually really wanted to get uh, a position uh, in Mozambique at like uh, in a public health um, uh, institute in Mozambique, but I, I interviewed and all that, but they never got back to me. And I also applied to do some uh, Uh, at the moment, like at that time, some science editing, and I got a job as a science editor. So I was like, but you know, like I got, so I kind of got into it like that. But that sounds like it was a little bit more by chance than it was actually, because I also had researched it quite a bit and I knew how to get into it. And I wanted, it was something that I wanted to do. So science communication, figuring out how doing science, how to do science communication was always something that I was interested in. Um, so that's also part of it. And the other part of it was while doing my PhD, I had um, figured that I didn't want to be in academia. I wanted my work to have um, more... Uh, straightforward impact in the world, if you know what I mean. So uh, I, I love basic science and I think basic science is a great thing to do, but I didn't want to be the one doing it. Uh, so, so I knew I didn't want to be in academia and I was still trying to figure out then like, what did I want to do? So I knew a postdoc was not for me, uh, but I didn't know like, do I want to go to public health? Do I want to go to science policy? Like, what do I want to do? I didn't really know. And then it was just like, what fell into my lap was this career. So I then I pursued it. Did you ever write as a hobby? As a hobby, like, like a, a blog or something like or, that. Yeah, or um, short stories or like not science I, writing. Just... I have uh, on and off, on and off. I've, I've done things like that. Yeah, but I never pursued it like persistently. Yeah. Nuria, let's do our first break. And when we come back from the break, we talk a lot about science writing.
Junta sorrateiro entre os caniços Quintal da dona Mamuna Os corpos lascivos e reluzentes Eu sou a mão Que batuque que esfrega teu corpo no chão Sou o sonho das pretas Regulando Vem pra nós So right now we're listening to Ole by Casa, Casal, sorry. Casal, yes. <laughs> and before the break we were listening to and I I'll let I let you pronounce this. Uh, the the okay, Shichuketa Marabenta. That's that the one from Stuart Sukuma. <laughs> yeah. So the first one, why did you pick this song? <laughs> Uh, okay, so so that so Stuart Sukuma is a Mozambican artist, and um, and this song is about Marabenta, uh, and Marabenta is like a, a Mozambican uh, music and and dance style. We all like Marabenta in Mozambique. That's one thing. Uh, but then this song is like it's so because he wrote this um, to honor two uh, Marabenta artists, and uh, so it's very like it has all the sounds there and all the like normal thing but then it has this like nostalgia type thing uh for, yeah so it's nice you know like so i i we i like that song a lot and ole so ole is the song from Casav. so Casav is this huge band um in french speaking and portuguese speaking africa i think they actually live in france um there's like mozambican it's a, a huge band it's a huge group and they've been around since I remember myself they're still around and I think they have had at least one if not two Mozambicans in the band and they have like for me it's just like reminds me of my childhood but they're still going like I I was in Mozambique recently and I went to a show and they were there uh so so and Kassav is like sometimes like when you have a show of like lots of Zouk artists and then Kassav will be like the last band a lot of times and they have so much energy these some of these guys are like in their 50s and 60s and they still have like all of the energy and they're really amazing and ole is like one of their most well-known songs so that's why i picked it <laughs> yeah. I really like the energy of the song. It's it's really good. Nuria, so looking at your medical writer articles, there seems to be like two clear types of articles, right? The, the ones that are more hardcore medical writing, mm -hmm. such as, for example, hospital readmission that's linked to ischemic placental disease or mm -hmm. the interplay of dyslipidemia and age-related macular degenerations super technical language and, and super specific, right? Acute, I cannot even pronounce it, 
Paleonephritis. Yeah, exactly. Paleonephritis, shedding light on the risk factors. And then you have someone that are less core medicine and that it seems to me that they are more oriented to the like, I like science kind of folk. For example, how two women found their passions in science or how plants use lipid to avoid freezing, stuff stuff like that. That It's a little bit more friendly to to the common reader, right? First question, do you enjoy one more than the other one? Do I enjoy one more than the other one? Uh, that's a good question. So they are two different types uh, of articles and, and it's one. So one, uh, so the, the more general public or the more sciencey ones, uh, the more general public ones I write uh, for um, ASBMB, the American Society of Biochemistry, of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry. Uh, and and there it's more geared towards scientists and it is geared towards like science communication, uh, how scientists, how academic, academic scientists think about science communication. Um, and the others I am writing, I think all of the ones that you picked, I am writing for MedPage today. And MedPage today is a website that writes for physicians, keeping physicians up to date with the science, right? So it's like, it's, it is still translating science or it is still making science more accessible, but it is much more technical because they don't need me to explain uh, technical terms. It's just how it's making it more readable, easier to read and straight to the point so that they don't need to go read the papers while the... Um, the science journey is like how two women found their passion. That's like a more of a science interest type of thing. And then the lipids one is uh, is more like translating science to the general public. So yeah, they are different. I like both of them. I have focused a lot of my writing uh, lately on uh, writing to to medical audiences, to to the physicians, to nurses, uh, and all that. Because medical writing, a lot of it is writing to, to technical audiences so that I do that more now, um, more often than writing to the general audience. Um, but I also like science communication, like proper science communication, uh, writing to the general audience and all that. I do like that. So maybe asking you which one you like more is, is not a great question. Maybe, maybe a better question is, which one are you more comfortable or which one do you find easier to write? Because in the one that you are targeting the general public, you may have to use a plainer language, which some people may assume it's easier. But in the contrary, I think you always have to look for analogies. Whereas in the case that you're writing for scientists or for or for physicians, you don't have to find an analogy that this protein is like a raincoat or you can just say yes. GPT-4 mm-hmm. and they would understand. Yeah. So which one do you think it's easier for you? I think you are completely right. Uh, writing for technical audiences in my opinion, is easier. Most of our training is, as scientists, is training on how to write for other scientists, right? And then uh, you just, if you are a person who's good at telling science stories, which is like, but you don't need to do the translation part of it. So you can, you don't need to worry so much about (laughs) all the translation and all the, will people understand this? I want to make it clear, but I don't want it to make simplistic. When you're writing for a general audience, you want to make uh, science clear. You do not want to make it simplistic. That, That is kind of important. So you need to think about the correct analogies, the correct metaphors and all that. And I find that more difficult, but I also find like that very engaging. Like I really enjoy thinking about how do I 
explain this to someone that doesn't know science, that doesn't know what I'm talking about? And how do I explain it in the way that they understand it and that they are not bored? Yeah, I, th I think that's harder. I definitely think that's harder. But I mean, that's that's the art, right? That's mm -hmm. that's where the art yeah. lies. So Nuria, during your PhD, you picked a topic, right? You you, you choose a, a project and you and you go and you dig deep into it, right? You you go all in, mm -hmm. and you get a, a lot of knowledge, but of something that is really specific, right? So you're learning all the time, but about something that is really specific. Now, as a science writer, you're exposed to a lot of different topics all the time. And you're also learning a lot, but about like different things all the time. Do you have a, a preferred model of learning? Oh, I definitely prefer what I'm doing now. Like one of the reasons that I said that I that I realized that I didn't want to be an academic scientist was because I was curious about more things and curious to the point that I wanted to go deep with other things. So what I actually really like about uh, medical writing is that I need to go quite deep in in topics right if i'm writing about a cancer like i need to know everything about that cancer and everything about like all the uh, uh new drugs that they are using like i need to understand how those drugs work and i need to understand like all the studies that were done and um all everything <laughs> so i i go very deep but then i leave this one and i go and i work on alzheimer's and i go very deep on alzheimer's and then i leave that and i work on diabetes and i go very deep on diabetes um so i like this thing where i am constantly going deep on various different uh diseases um and everything that is around it um i also work a lot like i have to think a lot about Uh, the patient perspective and uh, how um, there's a lot of push for like making sure like how do we make sure um, to have equity in in the delivery of care uh, for in medicine so like there I go very deep on all these different topics and it's it's bigger than what I was doing as a as a bench scientist in academia so I I really enjoy that uh, honestly like it is I, I really enjoy what I do right now. So you say you love, you at least during your PhD, you love learning new things. And now you, you kept that aspect of your of your job. Like you, you still learn new things all the time. This question might sound a little dumb, but don't you get tired of learning all the time? No, not of learning. <laughs> not of learning. Um, let me think what I get tired of. You know, when, when, when you have something that you love, it becomes your job. Yes. It, it loses a little bit of the, the the interest tends to pick down, right? Tends to go down a little bit. Yes. I, that that's what I'm asking. Yes, I see what you mean. So let me tell you, like during my PhD, like it was kind of what I was telling. Every time I was doing something new, I was really excited about it. But every time I had to do the same experiment, like for the tenth time. Uh, I wasn't excited about it any anymore. So the fact, I think what keeps me from being bored is that I'm always learning about something new. Um, so like what I find uh, in my job right now is that I do very different types of projects. And when I'm doing the same type of project, when I do too many in a row, I get bored of that. But then I do a completely different type of project. Say I write uh, a lot of uh, these documents called needs assessments. They are basically like a lit review 
but the focus is uh, on uh, the gaps in practice or gaps in knowledge uh, from medical uh, practitioners, right? So um, where like, uh, what is it that doctors like what knowledge, what, what knowledge gaps do doctors have? So it's a lit review about uh, the disease and uh, the drugs, but it's also like finding um, not just the science behind the disease and the drugs, but also like um, in, pract in, in practice, like why do doctors need to learn about this? So finding evidence of that too. If I do too many needs assessments, I get bored of writing needs assessments. But then I get a different job, which is more like, um, uh, like writing slides uh, for, for an education um, uh, program. And then I'm like really excited, like, how do I put the slides together? And then I get a different project, which is like analyzing uh, data tables from a clinical trial and like making up the tables that then you see in papers. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting and all that. So like by constantly changing the type of project that I do and by constantly changing diseases and all that, I avoid the boredom. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, what I, I could not do is do the same thing or just work like some medical writers. They just work on one disease and uh, like one sponsor. So one drug. And they do that like throughout their career, like for years. And uh, I don't think I could do that. I think I like what I do more. <laughs> so you're continuously learning and you say you have to go pretty deep into each topic. Mm -hmm. Are you accumulating all that knowledge or you tend to forget? Like you, you for example, you have... This month I'm working with Alzheimer. I know a lot about Alzheimer this month. A year from from today. Will you remember those things or you, you forget? A little bit of both. Because if you so don't forget, think, you, you are think, a walking library right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so no, 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 no. Listen, I there's like the memory that you have that is easy to 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 get to. Um and that is like kind of like your working memory. That is when I'm working on a project, I can tell you a lot about it. Um but uh, something that I wrote, like, say, a year ago, if you ask me now, I'd be like, uh, I don't know. But if I started working on it again, I would remember faster. Yeah. So if I asked you now, how do plants avoid freezing? Am I putting <laughs> you in a tight spot? So, so uh, this is actually really, really interesting. Um, I was like uh, an article that I did uh, in 2021 for the ASBMB for the conference. And I, I interviewed uh, a few students um, that were going to present. And uh, one of them was uh, Zachary Shoma. I think that's how you say his last name. And he was studying like uh, how do plants avoid freezing. And it is by using lipids, kind of. They they know that the lipids are important. They they're still trying to figure out the exact mechanism, um, and lipids could. So lipids are fats, and um, if you think about it, the problem with freezing is that ice, when it freezes, it expands, like it gets bigger, so that uh, destroys the cells. But if you think about fat it doesn't let the thing expand. So it kind of protects everything. So that's more or less. Uh, and then they, they have like three different hypotheses. Maybe it's making um, the cell, the membrane, like um, making that structure better, or maybe it's just protecting all the proteins on the inside. They have a few things, but like if you use fat, it, it like protects the cell from um, exploding. And that's 
like that's the protection mechanism <laughs> that they were studying. Yes. Nuria, do you use ChatGPT at all? I do. Yes. <laughs> do you do you use it to edit or to generate drafts or how? So I'll use it. I use it for different things uh, at different in different ways. So I might use maybe not ChatGPT itself, but like a PDF analyzer. You have you can then ask search this PDF for what was the conclusion? Can you summarize this PDF for me? I find that it's really good at doing things like that. You can also like with ChatGPT, it does have access to the internet. So you could do the same thing. You could do like, give me a summary of this thing. Um, and it's really good for that. Uh, it's really good for coming up with titles for things, uh, title ideas and things like that. It's good for, um, reading your draft and say in seeing how you could make it better so it's a good um it's a good coach it's a good writing coach and a good like second set of eyes it is not a good writer um because it as like i think people are always saying it makes up things so so in that sense it's not a good writer but it it can be good at these other things it's good at for example writing an email uh you don't know how to write this email uh so you 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 say like I want to say this. I don't know how to say this in a polite way. Can you can you write it for me? Uh, this is the person. Uh, this is whatever their position and all that. And it can write for you. It's good at, for example, coming up with interview questions. So like if you have a profile of someone you want to interview, like you get ChatGPT to go analyze their profile and it can come up with really good questions. I use it to help me think. And to, uh, yeah, and to like, maybe some people use it to edit, like you put it and you, um, how can you make this better? And it gives you suggestions for making it better. Yeah. Do you feel a little bit threatened by it? No, I don't. I don't. I'll, I'll tell you why. I listen to a lot of uh, accounting and, and finance podcasts because I like to think about things like that. And they all... Um, think that ChatGPT will be great and it is really good uh, with accounting things and all of that and I still want to hire an accountant because I don't know how I don't know if I ask ChatGPT for some accounting advice I don't know if it's true or not I don't know how to evaluate it because I'm not an accountant there are a million things out there about how to become a medical writer and everyone that I know that is coming to become a medical writer wants to talk to other medical writers because we know that there's a lot out there. Like, and when I have a doubt about like how to do something in my business, I don't want to go read a million things. I want to talk to someone, you know, I want someone to give me their perspective. So I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like there's still a need for, for someone to do something. And, uh, and I, and I don't think ChatGPT can replace me. I, I feel you. I, I hate, for example, when you ask someone, what do you think about something? And they say, Google it. <laughs> I usually reply, I Googled what this person thinks about this and I didn't get any results. So can you please answer <laughs> me? You know, you know what I mean? There are things that yes. are impossible to, to replace. Yeah. Nuria, let's do another, another break. And, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to ask you a little bit more personal questions, if that's okay. okay. <laughs> Yeah, 
seeing more of your party side here <laughs> something around those lines <laughs> so before the break we were listening to johnny by jamie aladi mm -hmm. and now we're listening to jerusalem by master kg mm -hmm. is there a particular reason you picked these songs all right so so yeah these are more i guess fun songs so johnny i think is a really 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 funny song uh, so and when i i discovered it i think yeah i i was listening one day i think i was on youtube and i was listening to different things and then the song came along and i was like this is the best song and i introduced it to my husband and he really loves it And he listens to it all the time. He's always singing the song. Uh, so I found, yeah, I found Yemi Alade like by, by, by chance on YouTube. And I really like her. Um, Jerusalem. So, so Yemi is like from, uh, I think she's from Nigeria. She's from West Africa. And those sounds are like very uh, West African-y uh, sounding <laughs> songs. And I, it's a big part of like this new thing where in Africa where we like yeah it's it's a big part of of, uh, of the music that we listen to and then Jerusalem is like from the south of Africa like from southern Africa um like this uh like the house music or South African house um it has like all So I studied in South Africa. So it's the this song in particular, but a lot of these uh, house South African house songs, I've liked this kind of like chill and relaxed. And at the same time, there's the beat, and it just reminds me of when I was um, uh, in college in South Africa. And we listened to a lot of this type of uh, house music in Mozambique as well. Yeah. You know, it also sounds a little bit like Caribbean music, which makes sense, right? Because oh. of all the influence. Mm -hmm. All the African influence in the Caribbean, right? Yes. All right, Nuria, I have a hard question coming out of this really mm -hmm. chill song. <laughs> Go have ahead. you ever had an ethical problem when you had when you were writing an article? For example, you, you basically you work for someone that hires you to say something. Mm -hmm. And and maybe they want to they want you to say things that are not true. Mm -hmm. Did that ever happen? So I um, kind of I I didn't take the job. So I got um, someone said that they needed uh, an editor, um, and at that time I was like I was looking for clients. So I was like, oh yeah, give the client my name, and then they sent me um, a document for me to. 
uh, analyze and tell them like how much I would charge them for it and how fast I could do it. And it was kind of like a paper. But then I, as I was reading the paper, so this was, um, it was for this group uh, that basically what they do research on and what they write on is to show that smoking is not bad for you. So this paper was uh, to sh like to argue that um, vaping was not a conduit to more smoking. So that's what they were trying to. And I was like, mm, no, I don't think I want to write. <laughs> I don't think I want to work on this. So I said, no, I don't. Thank you. Thank you. But no, thank you. I'm not interested. <laughs> and have, and, you, uh, yeah. have you ever been scammed? Like, scammed. You, you, yeah, you deliver an article and you never get paid, for example. No, that hasn't happened to me. Um, from what I understand, it's rare. I don't. OK, so uh, it, it's rare, especially because if you don't work for people for individuals and I don't work for individuals. So um, if you work for companies, it's it's more rare to get scammed. But it happens. It happens if you work for individuals, it can happen. And there are some stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that the writer's worst enemy is the blank page. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the cursor ticking there and nothing, 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 nothing. How do you deal yeah. with the with the blank page dilemma? Um, so I I just write something. Like I start somewhere, you know, like I I start with what's easy and um and then um and then we'll see <laughs> what comes next, right? So I'm also I'm not so I know like I have a very specific thing that I'm writing about. So if I do an interview, for example, then I might start by editing what the person uh, talked about, or I might start with a definition or something like that. Um, a lot of the times I'm writing and I have an outline. So it's easy. You just go and you start filling in the blanks, you know. Um, I don't usually start from, I'm not usually writing creative stuff, so I'm not trying to come up with a story idea. But what I find as like, I am a professional writer, right? So what I do is I write, I don't wait for inspiration. I don't wait to be in the mood. I write, uh, that is what I have to do, right? So I write, uh, and what I do is, is that, that is, is that I just start, I don't try to make it good when I start or anything like that. And then once you're in the flow of things, it ends up that it, it comes out one way or, the, or another, but yeah. How many rounds of drafts does it usually take you to have a final version or a deliverable version? So I usually, usually I write, my first draft is usually what I deliver. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so there, there, I am sure that if I had time <laughs> to do more than one draft, I could make it better. Uh, but most of the time I don't. So what, what I might do, sometimes what I do, so sometimes I'm writing and, and, and it goes really like, I'm writing and I'm telling a story and I'm self-editing as I'm writing, but I don't move things around a lot. With some projects, I might write something and I might be, mm, this would actually be better up there, or this would be better uh, down there. And so I might move things around as I'm writing, but my first completed draft is usually my my final draft uh, once it's completed, right? So I, I rarely go back and reread and make changes. I usually don't have time for that. Yeah. 
Um, now I'm, I'm definitely going to move on to some personal questions, okay? I, okay. I, would, I would like your opinion on, on what are the main differences or, or, or what were your main cultural shocks mm -hmm. when moving from Mozambique to the U.S.? So, okay. So really moving to... I had moved quite a bit before coming to the U.S. And moving the U, to the U.S. was the first time that I actually had cultural shock. Uh, and I think it's part of it is like a, um, a framework, like a, a mental framework, uh, because, for example, I had before gone like before coming to the US, I had gone to the UK and lived in the UK for a year. And I remember like going to the supermarket in the beginning in the UK and like a lot of the brand names were different and being like, uh, oh, this is so different. But that was my attitude towards it. And then in the U.S., I, why did I say that experience uh, uh, that I experienced uh, cultural shock was because I was actually I would go to the supermarket, and things wouldn't be where I where they where they normally are in uh, in Mozambique, and I'd get angry. So I think it's the getting angry that makes it cultural shock. But yes, I I was like, for me, the first year, um, Americans did everything the wrong way. For example, what? The milk was not by the eggs or what? Uh, cream. It took me forever to find cream. <laughs> Because in Mozambique, cream is always shelf stable. So I was looking for cream in the shelves. And like, it took me months <laughs> Until I like sat down, my friend, I was like, how do you guys make things with cream? And then she's like, it's there, where? In the fridge. I was like, why is it in the fridge? <laughs> and then I found the cream. But like even, I don't know, like even today, sometimes I'd be like in the supermarket and I'd be like, where would this be? Where would an American put this in their supermarkets? <laughs> Because it is not where I expect it to be. Uh, so yes, that you know, would be one um, Supermarkets were also a cultural shock for me. Like the aisles and aisles of cereals, I, I couldn't, I, I will never understand <laughs> that. But anyways, what what's the most common misconception that people have about someone that it's an air quotes like from Africa? You know what I mean? Oh, Because so you're many. from Mozambique, they know mm -hmm. they know it's in Africa, maybe or not. And maybe it's, and, and it's like do. they assume it's all the same, right? Yes. So like some people like, so like the first misconception or what, I don't know if it's a misconception or if it's like, um, whatever, a, a stereotype because it's not fake. It's not, they're not wrong. They're like, but you're white. And I'm like, yeah, there are some white people in Africa, not many, but <laughs> there are some. So that's not really a misconception. So that's one. Um, I've, I, I've had people like, I had a student uh, that insisted on, like, no matter how many times I said I was from Mozambique, he would then say that I was from South Africa. And I was like, South Africa is a country. I'm not from South Africa, the country. I'm from Mozambique. That is a country just north uh, of South Africa. <laughs> And it doesn't matter. And I had a professor also that insisted that I was from either South Africa or Zimbabwe. And I was like, uh, and he actually called it Rhodesia. And I was actually like, so first of all, Rhodesia doesn't exist anymore. We yeah. call it Zimbabwe now. Thank you very much. Second of all, I am not from Zimbabwe. <laughs> I am from the Portuguese speaking country right next to them called Mozambique. Um, so that that is one thing. Um, some people are. are I, I, I don't 
I, I think I have encountered a few people that they didn't say it outright, but the way they were talking about it, it sounded like they really thought that uh, Africa was one country and then there were regions of the country. One thing that is really that people say, oh, you come from such a small country and Mozambique is not small. Uh, so Mozambique, like the length of Mozambique is the same as going from Orlando to Toronto, as my husband always says. So it's like it's the whole length of the U.S., you know, so Mozambique is not small, but people think that I come from a very small country. That's one thing. Um, another thing that uh, it used to really, really irritate me, where people used to say, why don't you just stay in the U.S. illegally? And I was like, no. <laughs> Do you know how insulting that is? How bad do you think things like need to be outside of the US? Do you think that I would want to immigrate here illegally? You know, like people that come here illegally, they it's because life is really bad for them uh, in their own countries. Like life for me in Mozambique is pretty fine. Thank you. Like I do not need to come here illegally. And I did not do a PhD to then be here illegally. That makes no sense. So that used to irritate me a lot. Like, why don't you just stay here illegally? Because no, thank you. I understand you in so many levels, Nuria. It's it's um yeah. Yeah. Any any other hobbies you would like to share with the audience that you have? Hobbies. So I when I want to get back to this hobby. I don't have it at the moment, but I used to. Uh, I used to knit and crochet, and I I haven't done that in quite a while, and I want to get back to it. Um, I want so so I told you that I have a podcast addiction. But now I don't have cell culture time. So tissue culture time. So what do I do? Like, how do I listen to podcasts? I guess that's my hobby. I go on re very long walks, but it, it's not enough. Like two hours of walking, like does put me through quite a few podcasts, but not enough, you know? So I need more things to do with my hands while I'm listening to podcasts. And I've been playing games, but I've decided that I'm wasting my life away on these games that I have nothing to show for it. So if I do crochet or knitting, at least I'll have blankets to give people as Christmas presents. So this is my new, my <laughs> I'm going back to my old hobby of knitting and crocheting so that I can listen. So really to feed my uh, addiction to podcasts. <laughs> nice, nice. Nuria, did you have a good time? Yes, I did. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was really fun. Thank you for your time and, and for sharing your stories with us. Mm -hmm. And to our dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Science Stories. We'll be back with more. Wow. Wow.